Hello, and welcome to Inside Maine. This is Angus King, and today we're going to be talking about an issue that's important in Maine and across the country, food security, or unfortunately, food insecurity. And we're going to be talking first with Kristen Maley, who is the director of Good Shepherd Food Bank in Maine, and then in a few minutes with Senator Bob Casey of Pennsylvania, who has taken a real lead on this subject nationally uh, here in the Senate. So, uh, Kristen, uh, first, give me a, a, a big picture uh, uh, idea of, of Good Shepherd Food Bank, one of my favorite organizations in Maine. How, how, what's your scale and scope? Who do you serve? How does the system work? Sure. So first of all, thank you for having me on on the this podcast and for focusing on such an important issue. Uh, so Good Shepherd Food Bank is um, is the largest hunger relief organization in the state of Maine. We work with a network of over 500 community based organizations who are people on the front lines distributing food to their neighbors in need who are experiencing hunger. Our job as the food bank for the state of Maine is to get all of those organizations the food that they need to do their business. So our job is to source large, mostly donations of food, but we also purchase food as well as distribute food to the USDA and to distribute that across the entire state. Last year, through our work and our network, we distributed almost 32 million meals, serving nearly 182,000 Mainers. While we are incredibly proud of the work we are, we are doing, we're not satisfied. We're not satisfied because we shouldn't need to be operating at this scale. And we won't be satisfied until we ultimately put ourselves out of business. People in the United States and in Maine should not need to seek a food assistance program to get such a basic need met. Now, I've, I've toured your facility in Lewiston a couple of times. And what I understand is you've sort of had to move the model because it used to be that you got a lot of donations from the large grocery chains but they've become more efficient and don't have as much leftover food. Is, is that true? And if so, how are you filling that gap? Yeah, we've had to get pretty creative. Yeah, historically, mo all of our food, um, it used to be all shelf-stable food that we would get from our large retailers. So Hannaford has always been our largest food donor. They still remain that to this day, an incredibly strong partner. Uh, but they've been getting more efficient, as they should. And there's a lot less food waste in the system, which is a good thing. Um, how food banking emerged as um, as a solution of taking that food waste and 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 making sure that that any food that any food that that obviously was still very much safe for human consumption was very nutritious still got um, got to people who needed it. Um, so as those efficiencies reduced the amount of food that was available, we had to get more creative to see where else could we identify healthy food. And one of the things we did working with Hannaford was really converting to being able to distribute fresh food. That traditionally was not what food banks did. And there's still a lot of food waste in the fresh food channel, as you can understand, because it's a much more difficult product to move. And now over 60% of the food we distribute is actually fresh product. Um, fresh produce, fresh protein, those are really the top items in demand for, for people experiencing hunger. It's very healthy. And so that's really been a big shift is really food banking is no longer about, you know, finding surplus food and distributing it. Food banking is all about improving access to healthy food so that every person can be healthy and well and, and live their best life. So to, to go back to the sort of organizational structure, you're like a large uh, producer and, and distributor, and then you have smaller food banks in communities all over the state. How many, again, do you serve? Yeah. 
So over 500, um, 250 of those are, are your traditional community food pantries that most people are, are familiar with. Um, and then, but now what's also emerged is, you know, we needed to provide more access points to that were more easily accessible for people. So we now have over 150 school-based partners and we have over 100 healthcare-based partners as well. So our network has really grown, unfortunately, as the problem has grown. Well, now that was gonna be my next question. Define the problem. How serious is food insecurity in Maine? Yeah, so it, it really is a significant issue. So currently, 11.4% uh, of households in Maine are considered food insecure. Um, this was just released shortly, uh, about a week or so ago, by the USDA. That's the uh, data on based on 2020. So it's uh, we have about a year lag in getting the data. But, but because it's 2020, it does incorporate part of the pandemic. Now, the headline of that announcement seemed positive because that actually was a decline over the previous year's number for Maine. Um, but the headline is really masking what's behind those numbers. Um, one is, yes, a decline is always good. Um, and it really absolutely hits home that the catastrophic impact of the pandemic on hunger that we were experiencing was averted because of the government's swift and impactful response to increasing support for, for people who were affected by the pandemic. The increase in SNAP or the Supplemental Nutrition um, Assistance Program, the pandemic- What, what used to be program. called food stamp. That SNAP food is stamps, what used exactly. to be called food stamps. That's right. Um, and I know these were programs, Senator, that, that you helped support and we cannot thank you enough. Um, the school meals program, all of these um, supports, it prevented hundreds of thousands of people from going hungry. And so that is a very good thing. Um, however, 11.4% of households is still too high. And while and for, it went and for down, children, it's for children, it's even, I mean, it, it particularly affects children, doesn't it? Exactly. And that's where the data is not so good. Even though the overall number went down, households with children saw an increase in food insecurity in 2020. So even with all of that, um, in, uh, all of that important investment by the government, they still saw an increase. We also saw um, continued disparities across our communities of color. Um, communities of color also saw their rate of hunger increase. Um, so while the overall number was positive, when we look at these subpopulations, the populations that are most impacted by hunger, they are still suffering and need our support. Well, it's it, it, it's unbelievable that, that you're now serving 500 uh, outlets, if, if you will. And let's talk about where we go from here. Now, mm -hmm. This the end of this week, the emergency SNAP uh, increase goes away but a new a, a, a new increase comes back in that will essentially keep us whole. Is that correct? Explain that. Sure. So, um, so how much how much assistance is provided through SNAP is calculated every year using a model called the Thrifty Food Plan. This plan was very outdated. Um, I don't think it's been updated since the '70s. And using kind of household spending patterns from the '70s. Um, to determine how people's how what household spending looks like today. Fortunately, um, it was updated this year. Um, and um, the, so now the thrifty food meal plan has been updated to to really reflect um, you know what what's really happening in terms of how people spend their money and the impact of food prices. And that's essentially going to increase um, snap by by around twenty five percent. The best news is while the pandemic snap increase was temporary, 
this is going to be a permanent increase, which is fabulous news. So we are really excited to see what the long-term impact this, it's such an incredible investment in our families and in our communities is going to have. So you kind of operate at a crossroads between private philanthropy, traditional food pantries, working with the, the larger food chains, but also you're very much attuned to what's going on with uh, food programs on the national and state level. Now, this didn't Maine just go to a universal uh, school lunch. Uh, no, everybody uh, has the uh, school lunch, not just certain people. That's right. That's one of our, our big advocacy wins for this year was Maine was the second state in the country to pass universal school meals for all children. But this is so important because so many children who need those meals aren't able to access them because they need to rely on forms getting sent home, getting returned, um, and again, this is where especially communities of color, especially in Maine, our immigrant communities are at a disadvantage because of language barriers and just having to fill out that paperwork. So many of these kids don't get the meals that they were qualified for because of the paperwork. Um, and schools were having to spend, you know, ridiculous amount of uh, resources figuring out, you know, who, who did the paperwork, who didn't, who's paid, who's not. And it's just much more efficient to just feed all the kids we have the funding to feed all the kids. So let's just make sure they all get that food. Now, what we still need to work on is that bill is not fully funded. So we need to work on that. Um, and one of the ways that the federal government can help with this is um, by, in, by, by strengthening programs like community eligibility, which helps, um, we won't get into the details of the policy because then we'll lose everybody. Uh, but it essentially makes it more cost-effective for school districts to be able to, to be able to fund all those meals because it increases the amount that the federal government picks up, um, so that that could help uh, immensely. And uh, certainly, we hope Maine we hope Maine passing it is going to start a domino effect. So all across the country, um, these universal school meals go into effect, um, and that we eventually get at the federal level. This becomes national policy. You know, the the, well, the highlight of the pandemic was that the things that we didn't think were possible, we realized we could actually do, and universal school meals is one of those. Well, and the other thing it does, it eliminates the, the, a stigma issue. Absolutely. Uh, a, 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 a child doesn't have to go through the lunch line and, in effect, say, I'm poor. That's right. That's exactly. Yeah, everybody, just everybody goes and gets the meal, and and no one's highlighted as, as you know, not being able to pay or being overdue on a, on a bill, uh, you know, on their bill. It's just, just feed the kids. Well, now these food pantries are generally volunteer organizations, aren't they, with very... They have some professional staff, but it's mostly, this is community-based philanthropy. It really is. Um, obviously the food bank, we are all, we are all paid staff. Um, however, our community-based partners are much smaller and they're almost all volunteer run. And this is where, you know, I, as I, I always say, we are really proud of what we do, but we're not satisfied because food is a basic human need. Um, and to rely on you know, volunteers to have such a basic need be fulfilled is an incredibly vulnerable way to meet the needs of people. And so this is where we really believe robust programs like, like SNAP and the school meal program are such a more efficient, effective way to, to make people's, um, in order to feed people, and to your point, and to do it with, with the dignity that all of us deserve. Well, and, and also, isn't there data that kids with full stomachs learn better? <laughs> to put it most bluntly. 
Yeah, I'm always surprised we need to have data to prove that. Spend any time with a hungry toddler and you'll learn pretty quickly. Um, absolutely. The data is so uh, is so abundantly clear um, that children, especially the, the long-term impacts of hunger on children are really irreversible, especially if they're food insecure in those first five years of life. It impacts their brain development, their physical development, and they've shown not only to have educational impairments, but also behavior and, um, and long-term effects on their education, which then follows them into their earnings capability in future life. So this lack of investment in our kids in these early years, we pay for as a society over and over again over the long run. Um, also food insecure households are much more likely to be in poor health. Um, they're more likely, um, in fact, uh, all 10 of the most prevalent chronic illnesses in, in the United States are highly correlated with food insecurity. It's the only factor that is correlated with all 10 of these chronic illnesses, even income. Um, so really, we look at this as this isn't charity. This is investing in our, in, in the, in our human capital. Pay me now or pay me later was the old ad campaign. That's right. And I think this one fits that. Well, Kristen, thank you so much for for joining us but also for the incredible work that you're doing uh, joanne would be very proud uh to see where the food bank is now where good shepherd is and the service that you're providing to maine is is truly ir irreplaceable so thank you for that and i hope uh, our listeners are going to stay with us because we're going to move from the state of maine to talking about the national issues with uh, my good friend senator bob casey of pennsylvania again Thanks to Kristen Maley for joining us and for the wonderful work that Good Shepherd Food Bank does uh, throughout the state. If you have a chance, visit one of their uh, facilities. You'll be really impressed by the work that they're doing. Kristen, again, thanks very much and uh, look forward to seeing you in person uh, sometime soon. Thank you, Senator. Appreciate it. Welcome back to Inside Maine. This is Angus King, and we're talking today about food insecurity, food programs, and making sure people have enough to eat. And my guest, I'm honored to have Bob Casey, a senator from Pennsylvania who has been very active in the area of supporting people in their homes and in home care and also in food programs. Bob, we got a national problem. We got hungry people. Angus, we do. I'm, first of all, honored to, to be with you and really want to thank you for your work combating food insecurity and working on so many of these programs that um, we're either trying to protect or, in some cases, trying to expand. But we're, we're told that um, before the pandemic, we had maybe as many as 10 million children that were food insecure, uh, but that number went a lot higher in during and the aftermath of the pandemic. So what was a you know, hunger or food insecurity problem for children got a hell of a lot worse just as it did for adults. So I think that compels us or should compel us to act and to enact into law a whole range of legislative proposals, some of which we can get well, done in this upcoming bill. Well, a few minutes ago, I was talking to the director of our largest food bank in Maine that serves a lot of local food pantries, 500 as a matter of fact, it's really amazing. But she was talking about not only when you have a hunger problem with the child, it, it has much broader ramifications. It's not just a question of being hungry. It affects learning ability. It, it can affect long-term abilities. I mean, that's one of the issues that really disturbs me is if we don't 
take care of this problem, we're going to be dealing with uh, people with some disadvantages for years. No question. And she would know it better than I. It's not just research, but she's probably seen it up close. But that's true. These, these, the impact, the adverse impact on a child is going to, going to be of long standing. It's one of the many reasons why I think we have to uh, approach investments in children from a number of vantage points. I just holding up the cover of a document we produced this last year or the earlier version of this last year, five freedoms for America's children. And one of the freedoms that we articulate is the freedom from hunger, uh, that that ought to be a freedom that every, every child has the, the right to, uh, to realize, but we're a long way from that. Well, of course, there's a fascinating thing going on with, with SNAP, which is, people know as the sort of successor of food stamps, where the pandemic emergency add-on is going away uh, at the end of September. But finally, there's been an adjustment based upon really inflation as much as anything else that's going to replace that. Is that a, is that a one for one or are people going to be, is it, is it going to work out uh, okay for people that uh, that change is coming in? Well, we'll have to see. I, I think we may need more than that uh, over time. And, you know, as you know, Angus, our side in the Senate was pushing throughout the pandemic for a lot more help for the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. And we couldn't get agreement on the other side. We couldn't get significant food assistance in March of 2020 with the, the CARES Act. And then, as, as you know, there were a number of other unanimous pieces of legislation to continue support in the pandemic. We got no food assistance there. And it wasn't until the December bill, the appropriations bill in the latter part of December, that food assistance was finally part of the uh, one of these big COVID bills. And then, of course, we went to the rescue plan in March, which passed only with Democratic votes, and we got some some help there. But I think, I think we're going to have to continue to evaluate whether or not what we have in place or what we will have in place, we hope upon passage of the next piece of legislation, whether that's enough or not, because some of these food insecurity issues are, are of such long duration that I'm not sure a bump in a, in a program will be enough. Well, I, I talked to people during the pandemic and they saw people in food pantries they'd never seen there before. Yep. This isn't just the poorest of the poor. There were there were mm -hmm. a lot of people that suddenly found themselves food insecure, I guess is the best way to put it. And, yeah. and I think it came as a shock to a lot of people. No question. And there were there were lots of stories about people who uh, uh, maybe even people who worked at a food bank or, or worked at other places where there were uh, programs helping people or, or charitable activities. And, and now those people who were on the other end of the other end of the line, so to speak, were were them they themselves in line for for food and those a lot of video on on uh, local news all over the country. I, I remember seeing one in particular in uh, either the city of Pittsburgh or right outside, where the the line was just you know miles long, and that was not atypical. So fortunately, some of the 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 gravity of that has been lifted with the pandemic somewhat receding but um but these these problems warrant a lot of now lot one of, of the proposals our state of maine i think was either the first or the second state just in the last month or two has gone to universal school lunch mm -hmm. every child no no more 
somebody gets it and somebody doesn't. And there are proposals for that here. Make the case for universal school lunch. Well, first of all, it's for a lot of those kids um, who young people who are in in those communities that, that this may be the only meal of the day they get, or at least the most significant meal they get. And one of the proposals we've put in this larger document about freedom, you know, freedom from hunger and freedom to be safe from harm and freedom to to learn, the freedom to be healthy, all of those those uh, initiatives and programs underneath them. But in the in the freedom from hunger part of our plan, that direct certification of school age uh, children uh, makes a lot of sense. You take the the Medicaid roles or the Medicaid the, the roles in the program, and you just match that with with school and enrollment data, and you can you can cover uh, a lot more a lot more children in school who, who can get a uh, get a meal or expanding this so-called direct certification of children. So it, it, the case to be made is that we have existing programs that we know work. And I, I guess the question might be better posed this way. What do we lose if a, um, a child in a school gets a meal uh, and, and technically they may be right outside the eligibility um, lines? What do we lose if that child gets fed? It's, it's not as if we're, we're going to lose much ground in terms of policy or appropriations. We should be, we should err on the side of having more children in schools get, get a meal. And if that means expanding direct certification or if it means other pilot programs being expanded, we should do that. It just makes all the sense in the world. That child's going to learn more. They're going to be more productive. They're going to be a lot less likely to get in trouble if they have enough to eat. And when I'm hungry, I can't even read a a stop sign barely. <laughs> I think that's a really important point because I'm sure some of some of our listeners are saying, well, yeah, but this is you're spending a lot of money, you're spending money on kids and you know it's the taxpayers' money and everything. But the way I come at this, and I'm always you know, I want to control government spending, but I think this is a case where it's pay me now or pay me later. If we don't provide the kids with an adequate diet of food, then there's going to be problems down the road, whether it's uh, problems with the law or certainly problems in school. We want to produce healthy taxpaying citizens for the next generation. I think that's the argument here. I do have a concern, Bob, there's, as you know, there's a lot of talk about universal school lunch that would cover everybody, no, no exemptions. That's a good thing because it eliminates stigma and you, you avoid the sort of cliff problem where some kids are in and some are out. But I remember being governor and the IDEA bill, which was assistance for uh, uh, people with, with uh, learning disabilities, mm -hmm. the federal government mandated it, but never fully funded it. And so I think we need to be careful if we're going to talk about requiring universal uh, school lunches across the country, we better be sure that we're ready to pay our share. Yeah, I think you're right. And you've lived it as a governor. The, the appropriations have to come with it. And, and that's, I mean, that's one of the reasons why we're, we're trying to move policy on a whole host of fronts that affect families and children, because the federal government really hasn't been in the game here of, of providing appropriations with the unfunded mandate problem. I was talking to a pretty conservative business group this morning about these kinds of programs. And I said, look, the world has changed in the last 35 or 40 years, and we've got the, the vast majority of, of homes are 
both parents working, if the kids are lucky enough to have both parents in the house. And therefore, daycare is not some kind of luxury. Daycare is a necessity. If you're going to work, you got to you got to have daycare. And so that's something we have to address. It may have been a generation or two ago. It wasn't that kind of issue. But I see we have to step up to meet the needs of the society as it exists today. No question. And I think employers increasingly understand that. They know that childcare for their employees is is it really an extension of what uh, of what the company should be concerned about. But for some, I think they're still seeing it through that old prism of what it means. You know, I've tried to use the analogy in these debates about infrastructure is, you know, for some, for, uh, and this is mostly about women in the workforce, for some, they might need a physical bridge to be repaired that takes them to work every day. That's obvious. But for a lot of other um, women in the workforce, it might, that, that bridge may not be the most important bridge. The most important bridge will be quality, affordable childcare. The most important bridge might be home care for their mom or their dad, that they, they feel like they can't leave the home because they have to do the care. They're not trained to do that. That's not what they plan to do, but they're doing it really out of, out of an act of love. We should make sure that there's a workforce in place, which there is not now, who um, is paid an adequate wage so that they can do that work and she can get back to work because she has a peace of mind to know that her children or her parents or some loved one is taken care of. But some people in Washington, uh, it's hard to get that through their heads. Well, I, I think part of the problem is you, you got to, again, focus on the changes in society. And uh, I don't have the numbers at my fingertips, but we're an aging population. And more and more people I know are you know, building what they call mother-in-law apartments on their houses. Right. And, and, and here again, I, I think one of the most, one of the strongest arguments is saving the taxpayers money because the cost of keeping someone in their home is about what a fourth of, of having them in a nursing home. It's a much less expensive proposition. Every day we can provide decent home care is a day that somebody doesn't have to spend $200 a day, which a lot of the nursing home costs are paid by the taxpayers through Medicare and Medicaid rather, not Medicare, Medicaid. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that, again, is, is very important in terms of the home care issue that you and I are both working on. No question. And I really appreciate your help on it because we, uh, we are among the oldest states, Maine and Pennsylvania. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, We've got, for example, I just looked at this recently, Pennsylvania right now, the latest number is about just about 18% over 65, like 17.9, something like that. And as you point out, the in addition to being the right thing to do and being responsive to the world we live in, as you, you made reference to, it is a hell of a lot cheaper. It's 90 versus 26, $90,000 on average in a congregate setting, which is really a nursing home versus 26,000 per person for the cost of home care. So the, the cheaper option is not only uh, the, the, the less expensive option, it's also the most popular because most people would rather be in their homes and be in the community in some way, as opposed to being in a, in a congregate setting. Now we're still gonna have a lot of people in nursing homes and congregate settings, but I think it's important to point out the 90,000 versus 26,000. Well, listen, Bob, I, I really appreciate your taking the time to join me and, and for your work on these issues. We have a, a program in Maine called Full Plates, Full Potential. 
And I really think that says it all. And that's that's what we're all uh, working toward down here. So uh, we'll continue to, to work on this. And I, I think the to me, the conclusion is we've got to look reality in the eye and understand what's going on and and, and, and act. Uh, and that's exactly what we're what we're trying to do in modernizing these programs and recognizing the reality of the world as it exists around us. And uh, I know that that's exactly the way you pursue it. Well, I guess I'm grateful for for your work and your strong, determined advocacy on all these issues, because um, we have a moment here to to make really positive change for people. We got to take advantage of it. So thanks for doing the work. Bob Casey of Pennsylvania, thank you so much for joining us. And thank you for listening in on Inside Maine. This is Angus King. See you next time.